Episode of Sauce Conversations, uh, season four, episode eight. And man, we got a special guest in the house. But before I get to my special guest, man, um, we appreciate everybody for support. Um, whether you're tuning in live here on, on YouTube, whether you on our Facebook uh, channel, um, we appreciate you for watching. If not, if you're watching the rerun, we appreciate you too. And also, you're listening on all streaming platforms that we're on, whether it's Spotify, Apple. Uh, podcast or Amazon Music, we we appreciate you for for listening. Um, first shout out to Vinny, shout out to Dad, and shout out to Maggie couldn't make it today. Uh, shout out to the the whole Saucy family, the whole Saucy Nation out there. Uh, shout out to our sponsors, Click A Fokker. Shout out to them if you want to purchase some Click A Fokker. They just actually came out with a new bottle. Shout out to to them. So if you want to make a purchase, the link is in our bio. There you go. Have the bottle the bottle shipped to your house. It has to be over fifty dollars to have it shipped to your house. Also, uh, shout out to um holistic remedies. Um, they have everything: CBD oils, um, body butters. So go check out their website and also show them some support. Support black businesses as well. And we have a promo code. Use promo code HRME Saucy. Once again, it's HRME Saucy. Um, and you get ten percent off at the checkout. And on today's show, I have my baby, uh, and Singe. Uh, he's um, an author of the of the new book, uh, Pot the Piston. He's also um, a teacher, and he also um, deal with um, teaches about uh, cryptocurrency. So he's here on today's show, and we appreciate him for being on the show. 
and we let's get right into the episode. Peace and love. Yeah. So, uh, brother, uh, take us to the beginning, man. Take us, take us um, to your upbringing. Uh, where's how? Where did you grow up? Um, how was your household? Okay. Um, I mean, I had a you know I came a mother. You know, she was amazing woman. Um, you know, single parent. Um, I was one of those guys that fell into that statistic. You know, me and my two sisters, where we had a broken family. My father was pretty much just an organ donor, or you know, he brought me into this world, but that's about it. And that put me on a path of really trying to figure out, you know, what it is that to be a man who had to define myself because I didn't have any brothers. I had a cousin, you know, it was like my brother, right. but for the most part, I had to figure out manhood. And uh, you know, sports played a big part of it. Um, you know, we both worked at the NBA and. And that was one of the things I always wanted to do was play for the NBA, but I got as close as working for it, you gotcha, know. Gotcha. But in, in in general, you know, the essence of, you know, understanding the importance of family, um, understanding the importance of defining myself, those things came later on when I was in college. And, you know, having to re-identify myself once I realized that after Karis one came to my university uh, in 91 and he exposed some things that I had never really thought of before. And that put me on a journey of self-reclamation you know, understanding, you know, who I am and, and where I come from and, you know, and, and how I can use that to move forward. Right. So we had different stories right. of, you know, sons growing up with their father. How, how, how was the, the process uh, for you actually dealing with that when your father not being in the household? It wasn't it wasn't fun. Um, but actually, my mother did such an amazing job. I didn't really need, know I needed one until I became old enough to have to figure out what does a man do? How do you shave? You know, like right. those basic things that my mother couldn't share with me. You know, that's when I really realized, OK, this is what a man is supposed to teach me. And because there wasn't one there, I had to figure it out. And um, I wouldn't want that on anybody, you know, but I'm you know, that isn't a crutch either. You know, it, it gave me the the desire to want to figure this thing out. And, you know, in the world, you have examples, you have good and bad examples. And I have both to understand what I wanted in life, you know, what to stay away from and what to get into. So, yeah, it's a challenge, um, but it's not a crutch. You know, it's it's basically a decision. And you could either deal with the, you know, as they say, you're dealt a certain uh, hand of cards. It's how you play with them. And I decided I wanted to, uh, you know, be on the positive end. Right. And uh, sports helped me with that as well. And, you know, just. You know, the love that my mother and my sisters, we all had with each other, that gave me the enough enough foundation to stay stay balanced. Got you, got you. So, so tell us about, yeah. your, tell about your mother. What is like a couple of things that you actually learned from your mother and took away and how it's helping you now in adulthood? Wow. My mother, um, man, she <laughs> she worked two and three jobs before it was normal. Like today, now people have a second job like that's You don't have a second job, you know? Right. But my mother, uh, she was working two and second and third jobs, you know, in the, in the 80s. Um, and she was, but still had time for us. You know what I mean? It's one thing that I learned is about working hard right. and, you know, understanding that you, despite the situation, consequences, whatever, that you have to rely on yourself more than anything else. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing when you know that you're your greatest cheerleader. You're not looking for someone else to help you out when you know that, okay, I have hands, I have a mind, I'm able-bodied. Right. So let me go out here and do it myself. So that's one thing that she definitely hit me off with is having the determination and will to go after whatever it is that you want to attain in life, despite and do it unapologetically, despite the odds. Absolutely. Um, yeah. My next question to you is, um, 
in school, uh, what were some of your favorite topics or uh, classes for you <coughs> that you was really, really interested in? Yeah, um, I would say I was always a love of astronomy. With today being the winter, winter solstice, um, you know, I've always loved about what space. I always thought about looking up. You know, a lot of us, we don't spend enough time. We're always looking what's in front of us. And very seldom look up and see, well, what is going on out there? Because there's, there's things going on out there that we can't see and we can't hear, but there's something going on. And that something going on affects what's happening here. Right. Um, the other thing that I liked is we had this uh, Toastmasters in high school. Uh -huh. So I love to speak. You know, I was always a performer. We had, you know, playing sports or in plays or, you know, talent shows. I was a dancer. Right. I was not afraid to get in front of people and, you know, perform. Mm -hmm. So Toastmasters actually was something I loved because it enabled us to just speak off the cuff about whatever you're feeling and uh, taught me the confidence of being able to address any crowd, be it one or a hundred or a thousand people and do it confidently. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. man. Um, my next question for you is um, in high school, um, going to a college, uh, what was the, uh, the mindset of um, <laughs> transitioning because you know things are getting very serious you know it, you know your mother still wants you to get your education and by the other hand you want to play basketball so when, when it comes to reality mm -hmm. like oh the basketball ain't gonna work out for me and what was the process of look i need to look towards something else and focus on that or what i want to you know focus on in the future yeah, I was fortunate, man. I was fortunate because uh, I was one of those kids that played sports for every season. I played football in the fall, basketball in the, in the winter, and I ran track uh, in the spring. Okay. And track was the least I was good at good at until my junior season, junior year. Um, and I had an outbreak year because I, I moved from being a hurdler, 110-meter hurdler, where I wasn't – I had the fall, my coach said, but I wasn't fast enough. Right, right. And I became an 800-meter uh, runner, so that's two laps – so in track. So that enabled me to go to Division One school, University of Pittsburgh. I ran there for four years. Um, so that transition from high school to college made me understand that, you know, I had aspirations of making the Olympics. Um, you know, as anybody else, you want to be at the highest level of the sport that you're involved in. Um, it didn't work out that way. I had a couple of fractures. I had a, a crack femur my junior year and that set me back. Yeah. And at that same time is when I got reawakened. That's when Carol First one came to my university and just blew my mind about the thought process of who we are and what our purposes in life are. So my senior year didn't end the way I wanted to be. I still competed, uh, but my mind was elsewhere because now I was interested in becoming more knowledgeable about the world that I was entering, the workforce, my, my history, like who am I as a person, how am I viewed as a person. Um, and this is the, you know, this is the early 1990s. And as well, I was becoming very vocal. So I started writing. I created a magazine in 1993 called the the Ghetto Times Magazine, and we're celebrating going on our 29th year. It's all mainly online right now. But I started writing. You know, just basically the things that I was learning, I wanted to share with our people. Right. Um, and I realized that standing on a soapbox, people got class to go to. So I started writing, and that right. evolved into me uh, doing what I'm doing today, writing books. Right. So, so um, did you get a scholarship to college? Yeah, I got a scholarship. Yeah, I got. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was fortunate. I was lucky. I was lucky. But, but it sucks to be a scholarship, you know, because you can't work, you can't make no money under scholarship. So I was broke. 
right, right, right. <laughs> I was there when it, I was it, broke. It's not like it is now. You know, you, you got a you got a scholarship going to college, and, and you're a top athlete. You get you get paid off your likeness now. Like they were not like that. It was just you no know, ramen noodles and, and you know, right? Exactly. Like that. Just, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I know that life. <laughs> so, you, so you mentioned your uh, uh, your website. Uh, you, you started with a magazine. Um, mm-hmm. What what made you want to? Uh, well, first of all, is writing is writing is one of your uh, favorite things to do, and also, uh, what was the process like? Where did you start actually? Hey, I want to make a magazine. Did you did you have anybody mm. around you that can help mm. you in the process, or you just had to figure shit out by yourself? Um, you know, a writer. You know, number one, I was writing ebonically. So what that means is that people even familiar with my works, so I was using Z's and I was using you know street lingo right. to convey information. But the information I was putting out was the books written by. Our historians, John Henry Clark, your Chancellor Williams, your Francis Cress Wellsings, uh, you know, Asa Hilliards. So I was writing these articles kind of like taking cliff notes of what they had written because it was on the academic level. You know, I nothing against them, but I felt like some of the works didn't really speak to people in the street. Right. And that was who I wanted to address. So that's why I even called my site, my, my magazine called The Ghetto Times. Like you have the New York Times, you have, you know. The Los Angeles Times, well, we need something for the ghetto. So it was the ghetto right, times. Right. So it was our time to have information about. So I wrote about stuff that were in a, uh, you know, in a language that we could digest. And then it would hopefully bridge that gap to you wanting to read those thick books with no pictures, you know, written by our great giants that talked about our legacy so that we could get a position of where we are culturally, where we are spiritually, where we are politically, et cetera. Because that's one thing that, um, you know, since the days of Marcus Garvey, we still have been trying to to figure out is, you know, uh, what is our stance? We have such an amazing purchasing power, but we still only have, you know, 1% producers as far as businesses are concerned. And that's, that's systemically done. And that's based upon the lack of awareness of what's going on in the world. So that was my goal was to write. And that was, it turned into a passion because I was a speaker first. Right. And I understood that you know, people don't have time to sit there and listen to you for 20 minutes, you know, right, right. you know, m- much more even six hours, which some of our lectures do. So I said, what well, if I write it, then you can read it at your leisure. And that's what it turned into. It started out as a newsletter. Okay. I wrote one month and then the next month came by and I said, I have more I want to say. And I put out another one and then started doing it in months in succession. And then someone said, well, hey, can I put some in it too? And that's when it turned into a magazine. That's so it, I kind of like back with back. You know, walk backwards into it. I didn't plan to do a magazine, right, right. Um, but once I realized that this was something I could do, of course I reached out to your, to your Susan Taylors, and at the time, Vibe Magazine, uh, 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 Keith Klinkscales was one of the guys that I, he, I, I tried to reach out to, and we had a brief uh, interaction, and he told me a little things, a couple of things. Susan Taylor actually took my works, and she gave me an F <laughs> on my writings. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, word is like that. But it didn't deter me because I understood that, you know, I'm not trying to address the audience that you're reaching. And even in my writing in college, I got Fs and Ds. So I understood that if I'm writing the way you guys want me to write, then of course I'm going to, you know, but that's not how I want to write. That's the rebellion in me right. to, to, to write how I feel like. And that I felt our people could appeal to my writings. And it turned out that way that it did. Yeah, so you just wanted your own lane and have your yeah, own audience yeah. you wanted to reach that understand you. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Nice, man. That's dope, man. 
Um, so, so you said it's been 30 years since you had this magazine? Close? Yeah, well, it'll be it'll be tw- it'll be 29. 29. Uh, come January 1st, it'll be our 29th year. Yeah, wow. 29 years. Crazy. Yeah. All right. So um, you, you didn't mention Karis one, right? So you was mm-hmm. in college, um, early 90s, 91, 92, 93, around that area, right? So mm-hmm. um, um, tell, tell us about what was going on um, in music and hip hop during that time and how much mm. and how much it actually inspired your writing. Word. Man, um, <laughs> some people might get mad at me when I say this, but in the 90s, you know, there was the beginning of this East Coast versus West Coast hip hop, right? And I was biasly devoted to the East Coast because, you know, from New York. So, like, you know, that's what I banged to. And the South hadn't really developed the sound yet. So you had Dre and you had Snoop and NWA and all these guys coming out. And I was fighting my damnest to not really like that type of music. One, because it was a little bit more violent, you know what I'm saying? Right, so right. we had our versions of, you know, of violence. It wasn't like we were angels, but I could bang to the, the lyrics. I could, you know, I could understand the, the beats and everything. And so at the same time, I felt that West Coast hip hop or gangster rap was one of the annihilators of conscious hip hop. Because around that late 80s, early 90s was when conscious hip hop was coming. We had self-destruction. We right, had, right. you know, these are the new school, Busta Rhyme. And so we had, you know, Tribe Called Quest. Yes, yes. They were some positive imagery of being African, loving yourself, right. you know, and taking control of our history. And that was out the Sister Soldier, et cetera, Public Enemy. But then you had West Coast rap, rap that, or gangster rap came on the scene and it, blew conscious hip hop away. And we understand if you do the knowledge that that was strategically done by the record industry because okay. they understood the appeal that conscious hip hop had, it was waking us up right. and they didn't want that. So of course the ANRs are like, now nah, we're going to, we're going to kill that noise and basically bring in and push this new form of music. So I was biased from the gate. Like I'm not feeling that I wasn't a big Tupac fan. I wasn't even, I'm not even a big biggie fan for those that, you know, may hate me. I was, the guy liked people that talked about selling drugs. You know, I understood you had to do whatever you had to do, but to sell to your own people, that don't make no sense. I didn't condone those type of things. I was looking for conscious hip hop. In fact, a friend and partner of mine, we had created a website in the early 2000s called ConsciousHipHop.com. Wow. Well, we were actually putting out information, seeking out independent artists that had positive messages and giving them a platform to put the information out. And because, you know, by the early 2000s, conscious hip hop was, you know, pretty much gone that, you know, we lost it and, you know, it didn't, it just didn't pick up. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, you graduate from, um, college. Mm -hmm. Um, So what is the next move for you? Are you just trying (laughs) to find a nine to five or you still, you still have your magazine. So you, are you trying to like push your magazine more? Like what was what's, what's your mindset during this time after college? Yeah. The big thing is trying to figure out how to make money. And, you know, now you have this degree. I taught for uh, six months in the public school system. Mm. Um, was trying to, and I wanted to teach African history and they shut it down. They not, no, you got to do the curriculum. You're not going to be talking about all this other stuff. And so, uh, at the same time, uh, the fraternity I was a member of, I'm no longer a member of Alpha Phi Alpha, but 
uh, my fraternity brother had, he was an engineer and uh, he, we were in a computer lab one day and he took one because I was also, I'm an illustrator. So I would draw stuff. I would make flyers for parties and all that kind of stuff, draw types of stuff, do sweatshirt, all that design, all that stuff. And he took one of my images and he scanned it, put it on a computer screen. And when I saw it, I was like, yo, I want to learn how to do that. And that got me into computer graphics. I stopped teaching and that computer graphics kind of fell hand in hand with me wanting to be a writer. So now in my writings, I could include some street art, you know, so that, you know, obviously visually that gets a person's eye. Now you get them to read the content. So, you know, for me, it was trying to find a job that, you know, to, to, to make some money. Um, jobs were very scarce. I couldn't find a job in my field of work. Um, and fortunately I was using the magazine as a way to also create some funds. Um, but it's still tough, you know, in your early twenties, you're trying to make your way and find your way. So I was doing telemarketing, data entry, you know, whatever I could to keep the lights on. But my heart was in studying and taking the information I learned to write it and, and disperse it to our people, because I felt like that was my niche. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So, uh, what was your, your first, I would say your first breakthrough after, after college, I know you're trying to keep the lights on, but what was the first major thing that happened to you where you didn't have it? You didn't have to worry about all that no more. Hmm. I would say, uh, when I decided that I had to become versatile, um, part for that big old thing in my computer. Um, I, I had to be versatile and do different things. So I was like, you know what? I'm writing. Um, I had this magazine. Let me start doing lectures. So I decided, you know, again, pulling back from my Toastmasters, you know, experience. Let me go out on the road and start speaking. And, you know, great opportunities happen. I spoke at Fisk University. I spoke at uh, Kentucky State University. I spoke at a lot of college colleges um, for a period of time that enabled me to get more exposure. Um, you know, people are hearing about the Ghetto Times. Um, I started doing interviews. One of my favorite and first interviews was done with Anthony Browder, who was a historian and a great Jagna friend of mine. Um, when I did that in 1995 and had him on the cover of my magazine, that gave exposure. That got even Vibe Magazine's uh, attention. I had a couple of interviews to possibly do write columns for HBO. Um, I even did an interview for back in the day on BET, um, the show they had. Oh, I can't remember the name of the show right now. Uh, some uh, Teen Summit. Teen Summit. Oh, wow. I was, yeah, Teen Summit. Remember that? Yeah, I remember that. So yeah. I didn't get I didn't get the job. I bombed the interview. I bombed the interview. But the bottom <laughs> line is that it was giving me exposure, and I was like, all right. So this is I really feel like I'm a journalist. You know, I feel like um, I'm a I'm a perspective writer with the with a message, and my message was consistent about black people learning about our history and reclaiming it and putting it, moving it forward into the, at the time, 90 now to now the 2020 now, what can we do to, it's great to talk about how great we were, the pyramids we built, et cetera. But how about let's build some pyramids in 2022? You know, that's the goal is to get us to that mindset. Right. Right. I gave me a hand clap for that. One. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So ever since I, ever since I, um, Oh, met you and, and was talking to you and, and building with you um you like to travel a lot so yeah when did you um at what age did you start traveling uh, and how did you um wh what are things that you like about traveling well 
I didn't start to travel for 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 joy until after I was an athlete. You know, we when I ran track, we were going every weekend. We were traveling all around the country with going to track meets. But that gave me the exposure and the interest. Right. You know, you're starting to see different things. But it wasn't until even working at the NBA, we started traveling, you know, going to cities I never thought I would go to on my own dime. Um, and just seeing that, you know, things exist in different pockets. You know, New York City is a is it has a certain kind of stigma. You know, we're all living on top of each other. You know, you don't get to see backyards and driveways and garages and, right. you know, all right. the cars on the street. You, you <laughs> see streets with, yeah, right? right? You don't see, you see streets with cars, you know, like out in other places, there are no streets in the car because they're in the driveway, in the garage. So in seeing those type of things, um, you know, it, it made me realize that, okay, travel is important. And then it wasn't until after, well, even while I was still at the league, um, I started with a friend of mine. Um, they exposed me to traveling to Costa Rica. Mm. Um, I went to to Africa with my Jegna, Anthony Browder. Mm. Um, you know, that was one thing that I had, you know, always wanted to do. And when I finally did it, it was just a big thing for me because I felt like, damn, you know, I'm actually going to, you know, as you know, the 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 uh, Muslims have their Mecca. You know, Mecca is their homage or their 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 their. Um, I forgot what they call it, but basically they go and, and they do their Try their their uh, I forgot what it's called, but pilgrimage? you know you have like pil- thank you the pilgrimage. You have Christians that go to Bethlehem, etc. Yeah. Well, for me going to Kemet or the original name of Egypt was my you know pilgrimage to going to the origin and to see and touch and be inside the pyramids. I mean, you know, and to see all the architecture. And that these things on the the hieroglyphs or the metal nature that's still on the walls right. tens of thousands of years later, you know, I'm not looking at books, I'm touching it and feeling it. That made me realize that this world, we're global. We're global people. Right. So we shouldn't confine ourselves to our zip codes. And that got me into the love of travel, going to the Caribbean, you know, going to, you know, I haven't been to Europe yet, not really big on that, haven't been to China, maybe get out there, but as far as going to the Caribbean, going to Brazil, going to South America, Central America, places where our people uh, have a huge presence and also there's some preservation and culture there as far as history. I'm all about because I get the, the local and learn about the things that I've forgotten through our generations from that slave trade, from that Atlanta, uh, you know, the, the uh, Middle Passage, things that we've forgotten because you know, we were brought here and our names were stripped and our, and our, and our drums were taken away from us. Absolutely. So you, so you mentioned yeah. uh, traveling to Egypt, um, finding out, you no, know, learning things about Kemet. Did you, did you go to the Valley of Kings and everything? You did that whole. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so what was your, your take yeah. from that? And, I, and after that, I have another a follow-up question about one of the pharaohs I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. The Valley of the Kings, man. I mean, that to me is like, when you see, it's kind of like there's a story that Napoleon, right? Napoleon in, in, in 1899, when he came to Kemet yeah. and he saw the Sphinx and it's called Hiramaket. And he saw it at the time it was, the sand was up to his neck. Right. And when he saw this huge structure, obviously he was, you know, amazed by it. Cause at the time they never thought anybody could do anything. This is a wonder of the world. And they see this thing and how big it is. It's, I had that same type of, of, of thought that, wow, these things were made tens of thousands of years ago and they're still here. You buy something today or you, you know, you buy an Ikea bookshelf, you know, you're good to have for maybe a year and a half and yeah. then it starts breaking down. One, yeah. 
Yeah, right. right. <laughs> well, we knew the, the importance of structure, and it wasn't just so much for it to be, you know, to see how great we are at construction. It was also to preserve the story. That was the one thing that I really appreciated. So the Valley of the Kings, these places where our ancestors were buried, you know, these weren't necessarily tombs, you know, as far as just burial tombs, but there was history there. There was pre preservation of the story in case people forgot. You can come here and read it on the walls because, you know, libraries and papyri, they, they can't live thousands of years. But if you write some in stone, more than likely it could be there for a long time. So that was what I was amazed about. Absolutely. So so, yeah. so one of my... Uh favorite pharaohs is um king tut the boy king right mm -hmm. so th there's a lot of rumors i haven't been to the valley of kings but it said he was buried with a lot of swords and stuff like that because he during that time he was um in war so they were saying mm -hmm. so they were saying that i was watching some i think discovery channel something history channel something like that so they were saying that his swords was not made of metal it was made from something out of this world Bring it, bringing us to mm. the, 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 when you said earlier in the beginning that, you know, we so focused here, but we don't know how it connects, uh, you know, in space or, you know, the universe and stuff like that. Did you, did you ever hear anything like that while you was at, in, in, his, in his tombs and all of that? Did you actually see the sword? I didn't hear anything about that story. I will absolutely ask my Jagna about it because I'd also know that some of these, and not to knock the story, but, some of these uh, documentaries and shows that are put on TV are used as, you know, to get people to be interested. So they'll bring some mystique into it. You know, right. we see here about did the aliens build the pyramids? You know, I'm like, no, yeah, they yeah, were actual yeah. people. They were, exactly. You know, so they might put a twist on it to get you to be intrigued about the mystery of right. Egypt. But I'll ask him about that and get back to you on that. But I do know that, um, you know, there was things in there that I didn't even know existed. Like, for instance, I've, <laughs> our ancestors used condoms. Yeah, yeah. They had lambskin condoms in the museum. Like, right. you know, so, you know, they had the beds. And the, the interesting thing about Kemet that I'm still trying to understand is when you go into the tombs, you just don't walk in like a door. Like, you know, I'm six foot two, so I just can't walk in standing up. I'm a, the, the doors are like probably this high, so you got to stoop down on all fours and sometimes back in first to get to out of a tomb. Right. Um, the beds that they had, these beds weren't very big beds in the museum. So it, it leads you to wonder just how tall, you know, our ancestors were. Um, and it, you know, it makes sense when we think about how now, you know, six, two is considered tall, but kids are 13 and 14 at six foot. So we are, you know, as I don't get caught up into the whole fact that were they aliens or were we just, or were we midgets? No, but I do understand that, you know, there was a reason why, they had the, the the low passage doors, and you know you just couldn't walk through. I don't know what it was for. Maybe they, I was told bowing down was a form of reverence. Right. So when you want to walk through a special ancient tomb, a special place, bowing down, you know you'd be forced to. So because of the height, that's also form forcing you to sh to show some respect and reverence in coming in, in through this pathway. Right. Yeah. Uh, my my next question for you. Um, there always been this uh debate about um i think her name is hussatup queen hussatup yes 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 but yes mm -hmm. there was mm -hmm. there was um i'm not sure if it's true or not but like i said i don't want to believe everything i see on tv or, or read but they were saying that um like her uh her tomb had like the 
they had to make something out of wood, like a beard, because all the kings had beards, like, you know, what they, they put on or something like that. So yeah. they said that she put that on once she became a queen or king of Egypt after um, the king before that uh, died. How, how true yes. is that? She was the first female. So she did wear she did wear a fake beard. She didn't grow a beard. So she would wear a beard. And I gotta remember the story here because I'm not gonna mess it up for a little bit, but um uh Hepshetsit, uh her son, and I wanna say it's I cannot and I could be wrong. Please don't strike me if I'm wrong. Um, but the the information's out there. But her son, uh they he he basically did not want they basically uh wanted to get her out they wanted to rid her out of it so they actually do the, did their best to erase her from the history right right there were statues of her that they dethroned they tore them down yeah. uh but she was the first female pharaoh and she ruled um with an iron fist she was dope and and she is a woman of antiquity that a lot of people aren't aware of so yeah she did have that fake beard you know, because he basically was saying I could do exactly what men can do and better. Right. You know, so that definitely, you know, I always echo her energy. I saw that in my mother. You know, she she did what my father couldn't would never do, and and that made me understand that there is no gender war here. You know, we are all equal. There's balances. Some things that we're good at that we're not, and, and they are, and etc. And if we see each other as that as that union, um, collectively we are much space. Right. So, so an- yeah. another thing they were saying that um, that is that King Tut's grandmother or great grandmother? Are uh, you gonna mess me up on that one? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not. I, I'm a little little uh, rusty in my my family tree of of it. Um, I want to say that that is the grandmother, grandmother. Um, but don't quote me. But she isn't within the two two family bloodlines. Yes, they are related. Got you. Yeah. Um, with, with me, I always always knew I had like Israelite blood in my family, but mm-hmm. I, I never subscribed to it because I grew up as a Baptist. My father's a pastor of the mm-hmm. church and everything, but I always had family that would actually talk about it, the the whole bloodline thing and everything. So one of the things that usually come up, or usually when I see, you know, Israelites debate, or you know, or people just debate debate in general when it comes to Israelites and it comes to Egypt. Now. Uh, the Israelites like to say that they built the pyramids. Um, mm-hmm. Is that a hundred percent accurate by by records? You know, here's the thing about here's the thing about I and I have a challenge with our people, right? Is that we find a way to segregate within ourselves. And not realizing that if we could just, you know, Malcolm X said it, when black people come together, leave your God at home <laughs> because we will get in a battle about whose God is this. So who likes, but, you know, butter and a toast and who doesn't. Right. And that will split like the Red Sea right. and not deal with the actual issue. Right. When we are, let's say, they see us black. Now, we could be called black, we could be called Negro, we could be called Moors, we could be called Israelite, we could be called African. Any of those things, regardless, we are melanated beings and we come from the same lineage and we're catching the same hell globally. So while we're sitting over here trying to outdo the next black person and say, well, I'm more blacker than you and I've done this and you haven't and I've done it, it really is irrelevant 
when it comes to what is the common goal of what we're trying to achieve here, which is, you know, sovereignty, which is being able to just be a regular human being and get people to stop messing with us. Right. You know, can I just live my life? And I think that's the issue, the trap that we fall into is that we'll get into these debates. And most folks that want to do these debates haven't stepped foot in Africa, mm. haven't done the studies in Africa, haven't studied the timelines in Africa, and they may come from a religious perspective. Well, religion, you know, is not as old as history. So if we go back to history before there was religion, then I think you're better off in getting the accurate uh, depictions of what happened in history. But, you know, I don't, you know, I understand when we talk about religion, then people are looking for a reason to argue a reason, a re- looking for a reason to fight because, <laughs> you know, we want to fight somebody, but we don't want to fight the real person. Right. The one that's created all this chaos. The enemy. So for me, it's like, yeah, I'm not worried about uh, what, you know, if the Israelites built the, the pyramids, because in most cases, I'm sure that whoever was there back in, then and, and at that time, didn't identify themselves as Israelites. They call themselves something else. So it really, and, and, you know, to get caught up into, you know, who wears the badge of honor, who was the first, the fact is, is that if you are a, a being on this planet and you spend time in the sun, you're going to be dark. You're going to have kinky hair. You're going to have broad n- noses and thick lips and th- thick hips. That is a that was created by Europeans right. to keep us disunited. So that's something I kind of stay away from because it's right. it's an endless conversation. It gets us nowhere. Right, right. Absolutely. I'm drop a saucy bomb on that one. So I got a I got a, two more questions about Egypt, and we're gonna move on. That I, I want to ask you. All right, all right. Okay. So <laughs> so the, the the next question I want to ask you is. Uh, you know how you said you talked about Napoleon, right? So Napoleon, mm-hmm. you know, he was shocked that he saw these big black faces and he was chopping off the noses and stuff. He was, he was amazed but jealous at the same damn time, right? Facts. So, so and, and, you know, as you, you were talking about um, the first Queen Pharaoh, how they try to destroy her um, her legacy. Her image. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So my next question is, is, it, is there any actual facts that Moses w- was... In, was in Egypt, was he a part of the royal family? Because I hear a lot of things that they try to tear down his legacy as well. Uh, I can just say it. I'm only speaking from my studies, um, and I have I'm not a master uh, study a student of Kemetology or the study of Kemet. Um, but I will say that I haven't heard much of a Moses in that study. I have heard of Tutmos. Some people have said that Tutmos was Tutmos the Third Moses. Yeah. I don't know for sure, um, but nevertheless, I think that um, I think the problem is is that we kind of will we'll dilute the religions into the history, mm-hmm. and so we look. We'll use the Bible as a reference, and will, yeah, it mentions Egypt, but you know, let's just understand this: that when did the Bible first surface? You know, it has a, a beginning, it has an origin. And then also, you know, this is one of the things that KRS-One has said to me. And I asked me, he said, when you open up the Bible, it says re-edited version. So a re-edit is that someone goes in there and takes in or takes out, puts in or takes out uh, a change in a script. So it's done on a consistent basis. You look, and there's so many versions of these books. So this isn't God 
per se, going in there and changing and putting out a new edition, you know, a new version. These are human beings going in there to change the narrative. And Winston Churchill said it best, that history is going to be kind to us, many European people, because I'm going to rewrite it. So when we understand that, we have to understand that history has been used as a, well, history has been used as a point of reference for folks to think that this is how it really went down. And we just regurgitate what we're told and don't do the research ourselves. We don't go out and do our travels and do the research ourselves. Read those very thick books. We want the article. We'll quote a person and think we know enough. We won't do the diligence on understanding the the, the origin of time. Asa Hilliard said, if you want to study history, you got to do it in chronological order. What does that mean? That means if you're going to give me a date, then where was Africa in that date? You know, the Bible, not to knock it, but to knock it is that it starts in the beginning. In the beginning, you know, when's the beginning? Give me a date. You know, I need to know the date so I can put things in perspective. But if you say in the beginning and you just say, oh, that was whenever, like that doesn't leave me, that doesn't give me enough uh, foundation to start my study to see what was going on. So that's, I think, the problem is that a lot of us, we're not true historians or true researchers. We're just master regurgitators of what we've been taught. And that's programmed through school. Right. We're taught that in school. You know, we're taught that George Washington never told a lie. We Most people can <laughs> spit that out real quickly because we were, that was inundated. Same thing with all these, all these other doctrinations. It'd be religion or be it politics or the whole, the whole nine. So right. the re-education of us, of us is important. Let's go ahead and, and, and read those books, study those timelines. And then come up with uh, your own perspective based upon the data that's you know presented. Absolutely, and this is my last question. Uh, as yeah. you as you mentioned that uh, people who think that I forgot the name you said at Moses or something like that. Tutmosis the third, yeah. Tutmosis the third. Um, there's a there's a lot of you know mystery of who was actually the pharaoh at that time. Was it Ramses the first or was it second? At which time when Moses was around? Yes, yes. Okay. I, you know, I'd have to do my, I'd have to get back to you on that because I'd have to figure out what year was Moses around. Right. right. You know what I mean? And then you look at, and, and, and for those that want some homework, <laughs> you know, <laughs> bottom line is if you get that data when Moses was around, then go back and cross-reference that with the Egyptian dynasties. Mm. There were 27 total. Um, and, and if you go by most of the European history books, they're going to tell you that there was only one dynasty that was ran by black folks. And that was a 26 dynasty. But through the work of Anthony Browder, he's proven that, uh, through, uh, to Karakamen and, and, um, and, uh, Karakamen and Karabaskin, they proved these were Kushite priests that the original dynasties in Kemet were in fact made by black people, started by black people. And in fact, we were before the dynasties in Kush. Exactly. So it's always been black. And where is Kemet? It's in Africa. So let's understand that it's not in the Middle East. Right. It's in Africa. So I'm East. just saying that if we yeah, if <laughs> we can get a if we can get a date of when Moses was around, then find out when those dynasties were around and you can find out who was the pharaoh of that time. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. Um now you're an author. So um when when did you actually make the decision of actually um uh, writing your first book? And what was your first book you actually published? Yeah, my first book was Analytical Cogitations. Uh, analytical Cogitations basically means to analyze analyze thinking deeply. That's what cogitations means, thinking deeply. And this book was written in retrospect to semi-biopic 
of what happened when I had that encounter with Karis one. Cause again, I told you he, he really messed me up. <laughs> so I went, I went on a, a journey from that point and that experience I never forgot. And I was afraid to write about it cause there was some paranormal activity. And I figured if I tell people this, they're going to put me in a padded room. So I kept it to myself for a matter of, I think it was, uh, it happened in 91. So it wasn't until 97 that I had the courage to write this. And it came, the courage came because at the point I thought what I had experienced was authentic. Mm. I haven't and being visited in your sleep and, you know, uh, sleep paralysis, all these things. I thought that that was something original for me. No one else ever had that. So I wasn't going to tell nobody. But when I learned that there's actually people have about experiences. People have gone places and come back. We go places every night. When we go to sleep. Mind you. When you go to sleep, you spiritually go somewhere because when you lift your 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 spouses or your significant other's eyes, when they're asleep, they can't see you. That means they're somewhere else. Right. You know? So when I realized that I said, Hey, my story isn't as authentic as I thought it is. So let me go ahead and share sharing so that I can get some feedback and get some understanding because other people may have had these same experiences. So that's what made me write my first book in 2007, um, Analytical Cogitations. And, uh, you know, I'm writing actually a follow-up right now. It's a physical book. It's called uh, The Unknown Known. And the subtitle is Enduring the Seldom Quest of Questions because in the word questions is the word quest. And life is that. It's about a journey. And when you're trying to understand things, you ask questions. Mm. So this book is going to be about questions about the basic things that we probably thought when we were kids, but our parents or some authoritative figure said, stop asking, you know, like why, you know, where did I come from? And what is my purpose? And we're told, stop asking those questions, just get in line. You know, I'm addressing those type of topics because uh, for me, it's always been, it's, it's been something that's intrigued me. And I think a lot of us, at some point or another, at various times in our lives, we have these questions, but we really don't focus on the spirituality component of it until it's our last days. So let's deal with it now while we have the time, the, the energy to um, experience these, explore these ideas and see where it, so see where it takes us. Right, right. Um, my, my next question for you, uh, actually the process of writing a book. Mm-hmm. How long does it take you to write a book and when do you actually know this is it? This is what hmm. I'm going to put out. Because, you know, sometimes when you're writing something, you know, you always want to go back and probably add something. But when when it comes to the point, you're like, all right, I'm done. I got all the information yeah. I want to put out. I'm not adding anything else to it. I'm putting it out just like that. Yeah. I'm in that process, process right now. I'm writing my sixth book. And I'm like, I was supposed to come out with it by the end of this year. I was trying to do three books in three years. I did the Boule in 2019. I did Pissin in this, uh, well, I'm sorry, 2020. I did Pissin in 2021. Right. And I, no, I'm sorry, 19, 20, and 21. 21 supposed to be the unknown. Known. But um, number one, the process of writing a book is, you know, what is it that you're passionate about? For me, I'm, I'm a perspective writer. So I love to look at history and then debunk it challenge it, you know, or agree with it, but break it down so that I'm just not, you know, again, those articles that give you a couple sentences, a couple bullet points is not enough to confirm my belief or not. Let's do some digging. So I like to go in and I have a passion of, I guess you could say I'm a literal uh, uh, archaeologist, (laughs) you know, Um, 
archaeologists like to dig in and dig on, you know, in certain sites to dig and find the truth of what was here before in the ground. I like to dig in ideas. I want to find that original idea and, you know, uh, expand on it. Um, but you find out when enough is enough when the book is being written. For me, it's work where I spend time in my altar. Um, I stay connected with my ancestors and I ask them, you know, uh, to send me whatever it is that I feel that you feel is necessary. I'm open to it, but it does come to a point where like, okay, cut it off, you know, hard stop. Anything else is going to be part two or it'll be another book. Right. So I'm at that point now where I feel like I've got enough information to, to write this book, but writing to me, really, I don't worry about how it's received. If you write in a, in a way that perspective writing is, it's like we're having this conversation, you know, this right here, if you put it in script format, that's a book. So the traditional way of writing, the European standard of writing, they're all caught up into subjects and predicates and pronouns. I'm like, look, I'm going to speak directly to you so that you understand what it is I'm saying, have a, like a conversation. And I attribute that to the writing style of Anthony Browder. He's the one that first exposed me to that. And it made sense to me because at the time, as I said, I was getting F's and D's in writing. Right. So I was like, well, how am I going to be able to write what I want to say if I'm getting F's in, in their eyes? Just write how you feel, speak, write how you speak. And that's the best form of communication because everybody out here isn't trying to outdo someone scholastically. They say that the average, um, the reading level, average reading level is fourth grade right. for, for most citizens in this country. So you don't have to write on a scholastic or a collegiate level, just speak real and, you know, Make it simple, and, and it's not dumbing it down. It's just you know, just being speaking real, and that to me works. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Tell us about your your new book that's out now, um, "A Pot the Piston." What, what was the mindset? Yeah. Actually writing that book. So it's, here's the cover right here, uh, "Pot the Piston." Um, this book was birthed from me being fired from working with the National Basketball after working at, working at the National Basketball Association for twelve years. I was fired abruptly on March 13, 2017, uh, not because of I did something wrong at work. You know, I, I had great reviews, uh, never raised, though. I got to say that. I worked after that for 12 years, never got a raise. Um, got promoted, but more work, no money. Um, but nevertheless, they let me go because of what I post on social media you know, which is information pertaining to the upliftment and advancement of black people. I talk about history all the time. I talk about health. I talk about politics and do it in a way that it's not to be controversial, but it's to get us to think and reclaim our minds. Well, obviously that goes against their brand, especially when you got an 80%, you know, uh, labor force on the basketball court every night. We can't have them read that, you know, they're going to wise up. So I took it as, you know, uh, they let me go. And I had to make a decision. I was at a crossroads because I just got kicked off of this corporate plantation, which I've always wanted. You know, I don't want to work for anybody, but I had to deal with my money, which I was low on. And I didn't understand money. I never had taken the time to learn about money. And most folks don't until it's too late. So this gave me an opportunity to make a decision of either going back and finding another corporate plantation owner to hire me for a couple of months or years. And then let me go in there, you know, ready, uh, or learn about finances because this is what we all work for anyway. We get up every day. Everything is about money, but we, that's the one thing we understand the least. Right. 
So I decided to become financially literate. And that financial literacy brought me to the awareness of the importance of learning how to create passive income, learning how to make money work for you instead of you working for it. It evolved into me uh, creating the Crypto Woke Financial Sustainability Movement. And then it made me realize, okay, as always, I like to run my mouth. I know people don't have time. Put it on paper. So I created the book. Uh, I wrote the book, Apothepissin, Intergenerational Wealth Planning for Black People. Round of applause for that, man. Congratulations, man. Good thanks. Good thanks. Uh, my next question for you, my last question for you is um, mm-hmm. cryptocurrency. Um, mm-hmm. There's something you're very involved in. Uh, you also teach it. Um, when did you actually come aware of cryptocurrency and how crypto um, is the future of fi- financial stability? Uh, 2015, late 2015, uh, a friend of mine had uh, just said to me, yo, man, you need to get some Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I was like, I don't even know what this is, but on the strength that I know you, I'm going to go ahead and do it. But I also realized that, um, interestingly enough, coming out of you know the last recession, I had lost $250,000 out of my 401k. And... You know, I was in the housing market. I bought a couple of houses and they got foreclosed. So I, my credit was messed up. And I was like, okay, that's because I got into something and didn't vet it. I didn't understand how it worked. Right. So I said, okay, I'm going to put some money in this Bitcoin and this crypto and this Ethereum. But I'm going to take the time now and learn about it. And when I did the diligence, and this is one thing I always tell folks is, you know, rich folks have this, 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 this quote that they, I guess, know. And that is... If you're not spending five hours a week learning about finance, that you're being irresponsible. And, you know, it's a, it's called the five hour rule. So I decided I was going to learn this five hour rule and apply it in finances. And so, and mind you, the five hour rule can be applied in anything. If you want to be a chef, put in five hour rules, you become a master. So I understood that five hours a week is roughly 42 and a half minutes a day. And I started spending chalk, literally chalking out that time. And I don't have so I got the time. Right? Right. So I decided to, I was going to take 45 minutes a day and I was going to learn about finances, started reading books, watching videos, listening to lectures, doing the things I hated because it was over my head. But after doing it for a while, and those five hours started adding up, I started building my base and I started getting, becoming aware. And then things started clicking for me. So, you know, the whole idea of, and I know I got a seriously off the tangent of your question. <laughs> you um, okay. But I understood that, you know, understanding finances is the key because once you understand finances, then you can free your time up when you can free your time up, meaning I, I can fire my boss cause I don't have to clock in every day cause I know how to make passive income and it works for me instead of me working for it. Right. That I own my time. If you own your time, then you can focus on the things that you really feel you were born to do. When we were kids, we grew up, you know, having all these ideas of what we'd like to explore in life. And then we got old enough where money got in the way. We were told to go to get the high school degree, then we're told to go to college. And then when you do those type of things, then the bills, because you want to have things, you want to have material, you want to have a car, a house, etc. Those things cost. So how are you going to pay for it? So you spend the majority of your time working to pay for those material items that were told is the denotation uh, of success. So we do those things at the peril of prohibiting or prolonging the ability to create 
uh, retirement income, stuff that we can retire on, money that in our golden years will be there for us, on top of the fact that we put them in these money uh, money models that create very little return. We put it in the stock. We put it in 401ks. We put them in our savings account, and they give us 1% or 2%. Well, with crypto, I learned that crypto is a totally new, different way of conception of money. And it's not the future, it's the present. It's becoming, it's going to be the present into the future. We're seeing it right now. Right. And cryptocurrency has the ability to give people returns of not your traditional 401k and stock market returns of 1.8% over four years, but four and five figure digit returns. Wow. So wow. this is an opportunity that anybody, despite your ethnicity, despite how much money you have, you don't have to have $100,000 to flip that into something. People are taking a few hundred bucks and turning it to several thousand dollars. And then when you add it to compounded interest and you keep put that key into a compounded interest is a way to create not only wealth for yourself, but intergenerationally. So learning about finances to me is something that is profound and it was uh, purposely uh, omitted from our educational experience because they need us, as Rockefeller said, John D. Rockefeller said, that I do not want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. So we've been conditioned to be worker bees. We've never been taught that we can work for ourselves. We've been told that we got to get education so that we can work for somebody else and hopefully they'll hire us. And then have to wait and hope that they'll keep us long enough that we have enough money saved to retire oh, on. Yeah. So that's the whole, and I live that, you know, and we, each of us will live that at one point or another in your life, one day you're going to get fired, laid off. And if you're lucky, you retire. But in most cases, they say the average person has a job for, uh, keeps a job for 4.2 years. So if you're 20 years old or 25 years old and you're working into labor force to your 65, you're going to have over 10 jobs over that lifetime. And most of us will not put enough away to retire on until it's later on in our life and it's too late. Wow. Wow. Thanks for breaking that down. I know it's a lot. No, no. Thanks for <laughs> yes, breaking sir. that down because, you know, I- I'm trying to get into uh, crypto my- myself. But the- I don't. Uh-huh. my problem is I don't know how to trade. You know, I, j- I just buy the Bitcoin. I buy like $100 of Bitcoin, right? And I, I let it sit there. And then you know, yeah. watch it, you know, grow, grow, and then after needing the money, that's why I cash out. You know, facts. Right. Now, now here's the thing: you don't have to trade. That's the thing. Is oh, you don't. You know, trading is risky. You know, is you you risk gains and losses. It's okay to what they call hodl or hold on for dear life and let it just sit there. It's okay to do that because this is compounded interest. And if you cash it out, I would suggest not to, because if you let it sit. If you look at what Bitcoin is today, it's at 49,000. Last year, this time, it was at, I think, under 20,000. So you've already, it already doubled if you kept it there for a year. What was it the year before that? It was under 10,000. Right, right. So the point is, is that crypto has the ability to give you these four or five figure returns and uh, figure returns. And if you let it sit and you understand the game of compounded interest, Mm then you can allow that growth to happen and it excels over time. Those first few years, you're going to see some growth, but you're going to see some serious growth if you let it continue to sit. And then you also continue to put in. You put in another $20 a month or you put in $100 a month that we was, you know, the money we spend frivolously, take a percentage of that and put it into an investment. If it's not crypto, it could be in something else that gives you a compounded interest return of 100% or more. Mm. The stock market gives you less than 2%. 
So, and then don't be quick to cash out. A lot of people get into crypto and they get in when it's high because it's hype. People bought a lot of Bitcoin when it was 66,000 and now it's 49,000 and they're mad because they felt they lost. But if you let it sit and you look at this next year or six months from now, you'll see that growth. We're going to get back to 66,000 and beyond, not only because of speculation, but because the world is preparing for that. We have the metaverse. We have NFTs. We have blockchain technology that's coming on the scene that's going to be needing cryptocurrency to, to exist. We just have to stop jumping in with, with both feet and not knowing what's going on or paying thousands of dollars to hear someone dangle a carrot in front of you and they never really tell you anything. You know, I teach folks how you can learn how to manage crypto by yourself. You don't have to be part of any group. Right. You can do it yourself and manage it yourself. But the most important thing is to figure out with finances what are you investing for? What is that number? Right. You know, what is your monthly number? Like we all have that monthly expense number every month. We're spending money, be it on rent, mortgage, insurance, food, entertainment, whatever. That's a roundabout number. And our income is affixed to that to take care of it. But if you lose your income, you can't address that, that expense. Well, if you use cryptocurrency or other investments like that, if you take that monthly number and multiply it by 12, that's the amount of money you need to have for the year to cover your expenses. That's what I call the FEN, the financial endurance number. So when you know what that number is, then when you're looking at cryptocurrency or any type of investment and you reach that number, cash out and use that mm. to pay for your expenses. Then you can start, you can fire your, your boss. <laughs> and it's an interesting thing that we have to give them a two weeks notice. They call us, you know, professional etiquette to give them two weeks notice, but they can, I was a of that. <laughs> they didn't give me no notice. Even let me go back and get my stuff. Right. They had to mail me my stuff. So the point is, is that, you know, we have to start thinking smarter and working smarter than harder. And the thing is, this is not new. Rich white folk have been doing this for generations. And now that we're information age, this information is available for anyone. All you have to do is just don't deviate from the plan. Just follow the plan and you'll get the same results. Right, right. So, so the the more the more money you you um the more bitcoins you buy the more of a big investment you might get back, I mean the more money you might get back or so if I put Absolutely. like a, if I put a hundred dollars each month in my uh account, so the more I put in my account the more I'm gonna get back if I want to cash out. That, um, Absolutely, because crypto is instead of shares like if you buy stock, you know you buy more stock. Obviously, you get a bigger return if it's if it performs well, right? Right. Stock market doesn't really, the stocks don't really jump as well as cryptocurrency those, uh, does. But if you were to put more money into crypto, they're called units instead of shares. So if you've bought, if you have one unit of, let's just say, Ethereum, and Ethereum right now is at uh, $4,000. So if you have one unit, then Ethereum jumps up to $5,000. At one unit you have is now worth $5,000. If you decide that I want to put another unit, I want to purchase another unit's worth, and in this case, it'll be $5,000 worth of a lot of money in, but you don't have to put $4,000. You can put in $2 worth, and you'll have an incremental uh, percentage of that Ethereum. So if you are adding up, you're putting in $100 uh, a month, $1,200 by the end of the year. So now you have, uh, instead of the $4,000 worth, because you have one unit, uh, you, you. I'm sorry, not the, not, not the money, the monetary value. If you have one unit and you purchased enough to now have one and a half units, 
Well, if Ethereum is 4,000, then you actually have $6,000 because it's 4,000 plus a half of a unit is 2,000. So you got $6,000. So yeah, it definitely builds in your um, in your ability to uh, earn. And again, long-term, because Ethereum last year, I mean, you got to look at what Ethereum was worth last year. And it was, I think it was less than $1,000 or around $1,000. So it's four times its value in one year. And it went as high as uh, almost, it almost reached 5,000 a, a few months ago. Wow. But it's going to surpass, and that's the beauty about crypto, is that Ethereum is the next highest coin, and it's not even 5,000, whereas Bitcoin is hovering over nearly $50,000. So that's a lot of room that Ethereum could get. So if you were to buy some Ethereum now, I would say six months, a year, two years, three years, five years from now, when Ethereum is... 50,000, 60,000, 100,000, that hundred dollars you put in there, you're going to be loving yourself. Wow. You're going to be loving yourself because you put it there. And they say, you know, don't invest money and not willing to, to lose. So absolutely that don't put all your total life savings into it. But again, if you have a liquidation plan, why am I investing? That's the issue that I think a lot of us as, as far as black people run into is we just want to brag about that. We got a digital portfolio. Doesn't mean nothing. If they trip on the cord and the power grid goes out, you can't eat digital money, so have a tangible liquidation plan. I want to buy something that is tangible. For me, land is the thing you in because now I can live off it, I can monetize it, I can eat off of it, etc. You can't eat digital money, but you can live off your land. So use that crypto to purchase land, to purchase the business, to purchase your freedom, you know, those type of things. Absolutely, man. A round of applause for that, man. Thanks for breaking that down, Good man. Thanks. Thanks for breaking that down. Yes, and then, uh, that's the end of uh, social conversations, man. Um, brother, is there anything you want to, uh, uh, any um, closing remarks you'd like to leave with the social nation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, want give thanks for this platform, brother. I appreciate you. In, in time, bro. Um, and I just give, th- I give thanks for, you know, all the work that you're doing. I give thanks for all your followers. I'm sure that they're adhering to your messages. I hope there was something, at least one thing I said that stuck to the wall for you. Um, if you are looking for more information about uh, the work that I'm doing, you can go to CryptoWokeMovement.com. That's CryptoWokeMovement.com. I'm on IG, Facebook, at CryptoWoke or in Buebe Shange. You can find me there. I do teach courses. I teach uh, financial literacy courses, and I also teach cryptocurrency courses. You'll find that information on the CryptoWokeMovement.com site. And um, I look forward to... Uh, my goal is to reach and uh, elevate in the space of financial literacy 3,000 families. That's my goal. This is a movement. So my goal is to get 3,000. Hey, 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 what's up, Social Nation? It's your boy, Jeff, the owner and host of Social Conversations. And I'm here to tell you about our new sponsor for Season 3, Holistic Remedy. Holistic Remedies is a black-owned CBD company that creates natural products to make sure you feel good. Their catalog includes 150 milligrams CBD healing balm, 25 milligrams CBD honey and engaged sticks, and hemp seed body butters in six extraordinary scents. Each product is handmade with love to relieve eczema, pain, um, arthritis, lupus, general soreness, and many more. Holistic Remedies is giving everybody in Social Nation 10% off. That's right, 10% off on all their products. All you gotta do is type in the promo code at the checkout, and the promo code is HR Meat Saucy. 
again, HR Mikosi. Go and support uh, Holistic Remedies, which is a black-owned company, and also keep supporting Social Conversations. We appreciate all the love and support. Thanks a lot. Families to become financially literate. And when you're at that point, we're all owning our time, then let's see what we can do collaboratively. How about if you and I and a bunch of other folks have, you know, supreme credit scores, uh, have enough savings that we can invest to become philanthropists in our own right and invest in other opportunities and other people's ideas. And we start addressing the needs that we've been wanting for so long that Marcus Garvey has talked about that not a, a leader hasn't addressed since his time. You know, we're looking for folks to address our needs when we can do it ourselves. We are able-bodied, spiritually found, uh, founded, and our culture backs us up and our ancestors are rooting for us to reclaim those days of those luxurious, luxurious days of... Uh, of Kemet. We can bring Kemet back into today. And I hope that we understand that in order to do that, you have to have financial literacy as your base. You have to be able to be on top of your money game and not have to ask a bank or crowdfund our freedom. Absolutely. So give thanks out. Appreciate you. So, uh, Social Nation, I got the, the links to his website and his YouTube channel below. So make sure you go check it out. Make sure you subscribe to his YouTube channel as well. Um, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Um, on live, if you didn't join us on live, if you're, if you're watching the rerun, rerun, we appreciate you watching the rerun. If you're at home, just listen to all platforms we're on with a Spotify Apple podcast. We appreciate you for watching as well. Uh, shout out to Vinny, shout out to Dad, shout out to Mac who can make it today. Uh, shout out to the whole social nation. If you'd like to donate uh, to the podcast, it's um, right there at the bottom on the ticker. It's social nation 18. Uh, cash app us if you'd like to make a donation. Also, if you would like to be a guest on the show, hit me up at social I mean, social conversation eighteen at gmail dot com. Also, um, the the email link is also in our bio as well. Uh, don't forget to hit up Teespring, uh, get some official social conversation merchandise. And we got T shirts, we got hoodies, we got sweatshirts, we got masks, we got even stuff for the, for the pets. We got pet hoodies and everything. You know, it's, it's one time, so <laughs> it's getting cold out here. It's getting cold out here. Right. Uh, shout out to our sponsors, Click A Vodka. Shout out to Holistic Remedies. Don't forget to use that promo code HIV Saucy at checkout. You get ten percent off. Ten percent off. Also, uh, I haven't any, um, any updates yet on the, the TV network, but the TV network is coming next year. So if you would like to. Have your podcast, whether you have um, a podcast, whether you're a movie director, you like to have your content on a network. It's going to be 24-7 streaming network. Just hit me up at TV at gmail.com, and I will give you all the information as well. Uh, brother, you're officially a social alumni, so um, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks. If you want to be a part of our Word. panel, we could as well. So just, uh, just, um, Absolute. Uh, God bless you, brother, and keep working hard, man. Yes, man. I appreciate you being on. Give thanks, man. Uh, peace and yes, love. man. Bless. All right.
here's a dance floor, come move that ass. Non-believers, you can check the stats. I roll with Shahid and the brother abstract. Niggas know the time when Quest is in the jam. I never let a statue tell me how nice I am. Coming with more hits than the Braves and the Yankees. Living mad fat like a oversized man B. The wackest crews try to diss, it makes me laugh. With my track record's longer than a DC-20 aircraft. So next time that you think you want something here, make something different, take that garbage to say no We on a board tour with my dollar man. Going to never taste the mic in the hand. Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time.